everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Bavarian Podcast Works. This is Chuck Smith. I'm here to bring you the weekend warm-up BFW show where we hit on all of the latest and greatest news. This week has been absolutely crazy for a number of reasons, not the least of which is we have an international break. We had a couple of COVID cases. We have a seemingly unraveling locker room at Bayern Munich. We have the front office getting involved in pushing the coach to do things reportedly. This has been nuts. So needless to say, there is a ton for us to talk about this week. And we're going to break our normal five things format just because there's so much. I, I want to kind of be able to transition from piece to piece and work through each of these problems so that we can do it without having to be constrained by uh, our typical five things we've learned this week format. So bear with me on that one. I do want to break it just for this week so we can tackle all these big issues. And it's it's kind of crazy how it has all started to filter out, especially during this international break. There are clearly some problems at Bayern Munich. And we will talk about not just what those alleged problems are, but the veracity of the outlets reporting on these problems, why some people are skeptical, and maybe why you should give uh, these German outlets like Sky and Build and Sport One uh, just a little more of a chance before you dismiss what they're reporting. Now, it doesn't mean that everything they report is 100% true, uh, but typically I think what we're seeing is there's at least a little smoke to the fire of what's going on, and uh, maybe we all need to re-examine how we think about sources and tiers of sources and all that kind of thing that we typically hear fans uh, bantering about. But before we dive into all of that Bayern Munich craziness, we are going to start with Germany. Now, if you get a chance, listen to Samarin's great preview on the upcoming matches that Germany will have with Hungary and England. I think she did a great job in capturing what's going on with the team, what Hansi Flick is looking for, and exactly what fans can expect from these matches but when I look at Germany's upcoming slate of games and I see that Hungary who is a very quality opponent who can play a very strict defensive style that can limit uh, Germany's chances I I see I see a problem England no doubt is talented maybe more talented than Germany at this stage Uh, maybe a little bit better of a team than Germany at this stage Uh, So that's also a problem. But I don't think that either of these two countries are insurmountable. I don't think that Germany is unable to beat these two. In fact, I think Germany will pick up two wins, but that is for the end of this segment. So let's talk about a couple of things that I know I personally am going to be looking for. Of course, we've already seen that Leon Goretzka, Manuel Neuer, and Julian Branton have all left camp that put Hansi Flick in a bit of a bind. I'm sure he had plans for all three of those players and where he wanted to play them, what he wanted to see from them. The good thing for Flick is that he already pretty much knows with Neuer and Goretzka that he's going to be using them as part of his World Cup roster. As for Brandt, this is a uh, very untimely exit for him. Uh, I haven't seen exactly what the problem was with Brandt just yet, but we do know that he did have to leave camp with Goretzka and Neuer, of course, they tested positive for COVID. Uh, for Brandt, a player who I think has really improved his play in the last calendar year and maybe gotten back up to that level that many people thought he would be at at this stage of his career, uh, it's just it, it's it's really unfortunate. And that's the, the best word to describe it because I think he was on his way to perhaps locking down a roster spot. He's a very versatile player. He can play. Either wing position, he can play the 10, the 8. He can do a lot of different things, provide a lot of different roles for Hansi Flick when we know that Flick loves versatile players like that. Um, but for Brandt, this is it's tough. And he, uh, unfortunately for him, is, is missing at a key time. So we'll see how Flick handles that situation. I don't think Goretzka or Neuer has – I don't think either of them have much to worry about their position. But when we look at the squad that Flick has, I'll be very eager to see what kind of formation he runs. Will he stick with a f- traditional 4-2-3-1? Will he work with a 4-3-3? Will he employ some kind of back three alignment? He certainly has a number of great tools <laughs> in his belt to be able to do a lot of different things. And I'm sure that Flick, like Bayern Munich manager Julian Nagelsmann, likes to take advantage of having all of those toys to play with. Uh 
But Flick, in my mind, is a little bit more conservative, uh, likes to stay a little bit more realistic in what he wants to do in terms of changing formations. I don't think he's going to vary things up too much. I think because we're getting closer to the World Cup, he's really going to want to see um, exactly what he has in these players and how he can get them to work together. So I do think there are a lot of possibilities here, but I do expect to see a back four. I do expect to see some variation of a four, two, three, one. Um, although we could see some very interchangeable parts, maybe even some flexible type formations uh, with how the team transitions from offense to defense and vice versa. So that's something to keep an eye on. There are certainly a lot of players that will be, uh, pushing not just to make the team, but some players will be pushing for starting roles. There is a lot of competition on the squad, uh, and it, it just about every position. I mean, I think that if you had to look at players that were assured of spots in the starting eleven, I mean, you would start with Manuel Neuer uh, in terms of you know, positions for this World Cup, not necessarily for these two matches. I mean, you'd only have really Neuer, Joshua Kimmich. Probably Thomas Muller, although uh, Muller's form has not been all that great for Bayern of late. Uh, that's probably it. Now, you have a couple of other players like Jamal Musiala, Leroy Sané, who, of course, uh, are, are really pushing hard to be included in that starting 11. Antonio Rudiger is another one who he's not necessarily getting as much playing time as I think he probably would have liked for his club side. Um, Nicholas Sula, of course, has been battling some injuries, so he's still in the competition mode. Same for Nico Schlotterbeck. So even at all of those positions, we see that Flick still has a lot of decisions to make. Um, what he ultimately decides to do uh, for this uh, remains to be seen. So I expect Flick to be using a lot of players. I expect him to uh, tinker a little bit, pushing players in the different spots. We could see Musiala in a number of roles. We could see Thomas Muller in a couple of different roles, but I don't think aside of Neuer and Kimmich um, that there are really a ton of players that are are going to be 100% in the starting lineup. He's just, uh, Flick has a lot of options and he's got a lot of players that can be used in different roles. Um, I know some people probably think it's weird that I'm not saying Thomas Muller, but um, you know, I think you know, ultimately Flick will decide on having Muller in the 11, but something's been missing from Muller's game. And while he's still so important to both Bayern and Germany uh, as a leader on the field, and he does so many things off the ball that the camera and the stat sheet don't necessarily pick up, it comes down to production and he's got to produce and he has not been the most productive player. So I think he's going to have to improve in that area. He's going to have to start to be a little bit more selfish, stop looking to pass the ball so much when he's in shooting range. And I think that's one of the big problems he's had is he's been so um, he's had to sacrifice so much of his game for Robert Lewandowski over the years. I think he's forgotten how to be that attacking alpha that he was in his younger days. And I'd certainly love to see him get back to ripping shots and scoring goals at, at crazy rates rather than um, being always being the playmaker that he has kind of evolved into. So that's something to keep an eye on. Another thing, uh, another positional battle that I think that we should be focusing on is of course striker. Now Flick didn't want to in his pregame press conference dive too much into the individuals. Of course we know that Timo Werner, Kai Havertz, Lucas Nemecha are, are going to be probably three of the players that Germany looks most closely at. I would say by far Werner is the leader in the clubhouse uh, in terms of being the starter for that role. Kai Havertz, while he has been playing a center forward position at times for Chelsea, has not really uh, adapted as well as I think many would have hoped. In reality, Havertz is an attacking midfielder, so he's sort of being misused at Chelsea, which is another reason why if I was a German youngster, I'd be very hesitant to go to England because it just doesn't seem like uh, the Premier League coaches have a great idea with this newer generation of German players, how, how to really be able to use them. I mean, you could go back and see how in the past they have worked much, much better with Germans, but um, this latest crop, you know, that had went over there with Timo Werner, Kai Havertz, among others, uh, they have not uh, 
been used the best way, I think, to suit their individual talents. So when we look at that striker position, of course, everybody knows that I am the uh, hashtag Timo train guy, team Timo, Timo time, all of it. I've been that guy. And it's way, way, way too late for me to jump off the train now, right? Like, I'm not going to abandon ship. I have to stay with it. And uh, it, it totally makes sense to me that right now, Werner is the man. And of course, like when I look at this, and even though I've been supportive of Werner over the years, his efficiency has to be much better. And while he has been very good under Flick, 10 goals, two assists in 12 games, he's you know averaging one goal contribution a game. If you're a math major like I am and can figure that out, um, he has to be more efficient with those chances. He's getting opportunities. The one good thing about this German unit is they have been creating chances. Werner has to be better with his efficiency, but so do really all of the players on Bayern Munich. If you look at how they've been performing on their club side, I think the most lethal of the finishers for the Bayern contingent would have to be uh, Jamal Musiala, uh, probably followed by Leroy Sané. Um, those two, I think, have been the best of the lot for Bayern this season so far. Um, but when you look at Serge Gnabry, he's missed some some opportunities he probably feels like he should have missed Thomas Muller same thing so when I look at Werner and I I want to see improvement I want to see a higher efficiency with his chances and that's just the way it is Havertz I think is miscast as a striker I think that he can play it but he's really really more of a false nine in terms of how he plays even more so than than Werner is Um, Havertz is still to me more of a playmaker more of someone that can make dynamic runs from wider positions into the box I think he still has all the physical tools uh, to to be a contributor on this Germany squad. I just don't know if he is the right striker for this. And of course, Lucas Nemecha, uh, uh, still a little green for me. I don't think he's quite ready for this. I think he's got some talent. I think he's got some skill. I'm still not sure he's going to make the World Cup squad at this point. I think he's got a very good chance. But I could also see him being one of the last players that is left off of the squad just because there is so much attacking talent. And all of this could change because we don't know yet how Flick is going to line people up, what exactly formation he's going to use. We could see some alternate kind of positionless attacking group where you have interchanging positions, you have Serge Gnabry involved. I mean, there are just a ton of different ways that Flick could combat the perceived lack of a true number nine. And I, I think the one of the things that's really come to light is I think Flick is sick of answering the questions. I think the players are sick of answering the questions. I do get the feeling that they are backing Timo Werner. I do get the feeling that the players are really rallying around this in kind of a big FU manner that like, why do you keep perseverating on the fact we don't have Robert Lewandowski or Erling Haaland as our number nine? We're still a great team. We still have a ton of talent. We're going to score regardless. And I hope that's the attitude they do have, because I'd love to see this attacking group really just take the reins and be able to impose its will on the opposition. I think they have that much talent. Can they function together and can they be efficient with those opportunities? Those are the big storylines for me when it comes to the attack. And finally, the one thing I'll be looking at over the course of these two games is where does Jamal Musiala get used? Now, we, we know that Musiala is a true number 10. He is someone that can score someone that can create. He's got great pace, great shiftiness. He's got great explosion, especially in that first five to 10 yards. He does so many good things, but he can play as a wing. He can play as a 10. He can drop deeper and be an eight. Now, one thing that we did see in recent weeks is that Flick and his coaching staff were really toying with the idea of using Musiala as an eight and dropping Kimmich to be the six, just because Musiala creates so many mismatches no matter where he is in the pitch, but especially in the central midfield, because once he is able to break a line with his dribbling, it creates a quick counterattack from really any spot on the field. It creates a break for the team and it gives them the opportunity to push their pace at the opposition. And if there's one thing that this Germany team has, regardless of how they may look and who is out there, they have great pace. You have Werner, you have Sané, you have Gnabry, you have Musiala. Those are just some of the players. Don't make me even break out the old Lucas Klosterman was a track star in his youth. Now, I know Klosterman's not involved in this break, but he might be on the World Cup roster when all things are said and done. Either way, 
I think the pace of this Germany team is going to be one of its strengths. And where Flick manages to use Musiala is really intriguing to me because he's probably a starting 11 level player. But at this point, does he have a position in the starting 11? I personally would love to see him start at wing because I think he's so disruptive there that he could really impact games. But I understand that Flick might be looking at him as more of a sub just because he can come in and instantly change the composition of a game. He can change how other teams need to defend Germany. He can change what Germany's attack looks like. So those are the things I'll be especially keeping an eye upon. Uh, of course, the formation, the number nine position, in particular, Timo Werner, and just how Musiala is used. So I, I'm excited. I like international breaks. I know it always gets a little bit slow, not just on our site, but in the news cycle in general during international breaks. But I'm very, very intrigued by Germany's matchups. Hungary and England, I think, both offer some fun things to look at and present some Definite challenges for Germany during this break. So I'm excited about it. I hope you guys are as well. And the next thing that we're going to dive into is, man, this has just been one story after another about the growing discontent at Bayern Munich. And it involves the coach, Julian Nagelsmann, involves the players, it involves the front office, it involves the fans, it involves everybody, okay? It has been insane of late. It seems like every day, We are getting a different story breaking about someone being unhappy, players questioning the coach, the coach blaming the players, the front office pushing the coach to do things. It's nuts. I mean, you would think that this team has lost five games, not one. Now, granted, they are underperforming. That is 100% indisputable. I mean, to have this that many draws in a row and then lead into a loss, it's not good, okay? But the talent on the roster is still exceptional, but it was always going to take a lot of time to get it together. And I think that Nagelsmann has been tasked with something that is a long-term project, but everyone, including the players and the fans and and, and the club executives, they want short-term results and it's not going to work that way. To be, to be able to do what they want him to do, he needed full buy-in from the players. He needed, honestly, less talented players because he's got too many right now. He's got too many players wanting too much time and wanting bigger roles than what they have. And it has become an issue for him to manage. And it's always been a fear of mine. And I understand the mindset that other people might have about you need a big team. You're eventually going to need all of these players. And I totally get it. But from a managerial standpoint, I don't see how Nagelsmann is is really handling this the best way. And I think if some of these stories at least have a bit of truth to them, that he is in a little bit of trouble, maybe not necessarily for his job this season, but for how the players are receiving his message or how the players trust him. And as we all know, if those things aren't happening, it's going to create such big cracks in the foundation of the squad that eventually it's not going to be repairable for Nagelsmann. So let's dive into it. Let's take a look at some of the big storylines that we've seen and Let's first acknowledge that we have seen the stories about the player unhappiness, which we covered last week and the week before. We've seen that Ryan Gravenberg and Leon Gretzka were two of the players that were really unhappy about their roles on the team. Gravenberg even admitted it this week in talking with the Dutch national team um, that he's not happy and he wants more playing time. But, buddy, I don't know what you were thinking. (laughs) When you signed a contract with Bayern Munich, no matter what Brazo had in that PowerPoint, you had to look at that roster and you had to say, they have two set starters already for two central midfield positions in Yashua Kimmich and Leon Goretzka. After them, they have Marcel Sabitzer, who even though he had a poor season last year, he is still a good player, still a world-class player. And he has picked his game back up to the point where he is in the mix to be a starter, not just the third wheel. So Gravenberg, to me, I'm very puzzled. And I think he's either got to get his mindset correct, or he's got to talk to his agent because whatever he was sold as his role being on this team, it was way oversold. It was too much. Like I didn't expect him to even come in and play as much as he has so far because Kimmich never comes off the field. Goretzka, when he's healthy, 
is a player that has traditionally stayed on for the majority of almost every game. And when those two do come off or one of them needs a blow or a day off, Marcel Sabitzer has proven to be the perfect complement for Goretzka and Kimmich because he has willingly made sacrifices in his game to make himself more adaptable and flexible to what Byron wants to do. He's sitting deeper. He's not really being as much of an offensive presence as we've seen him at RB Leipzig. And it's worked. It's worked greatly for him and he's having a good season. So Gravenberg for as much talent as he may have. And for as well as he reportedly does in training, he's got to get his, his expectations a little more realistic, or he's got to figure out if this is a good environment for him at such a young age to not be playing as much as he feels he should. And I always kind of wondered about this because I am not just a, a, a talent acquisition guy. I, 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 I think there are times when you have to stockpile talent, but it's got to be at the right positions. And I didn't think that Graven Burke, given his age, given what his playing time expectations, I thought they would be, which I thought he would want to come in and start. I didn't think it was necessarily a, terrific move from that standpoint now as a business move Byron did great this is clearly an asset whose value is going to continue to grow whether he plays or not so from the business end they're going to make money if they ever have to sell Gravenberg but I didn't think it was a good idea to bring in such a young kid who needs field time to to come in and be the fourth midfielder and at best be the third so um, we'll leave all that for the past but what we have seen, especially emerge this week, is that Julian Nagelsmann has gotten several votes of confidence, from <laughs> not just from Oliver Kahn, but from Brazo, from Herbert Heiner. Everyone is sensing that Nagelsmann needs to be told his job is safe. And it's, you know, of course, a lot of this is media speculation. We've we've seen the Thomas Tuchel rumors already emerge, which I, I don't even get me started on that. He's a fine coach. He can come in and he can make an instant impact and make your team better from day one. But I feel like he'll coach up to a point where his team will peak. And for Chelsea, to me, it was in the Champions League finale. And everything from that point at Chelsea went downhill. And And listen, if he got Bayern to the Champions League finale, maybe it's all worth it. But I think what happens after that is Tuchel is such an abrasive personality that he has such trouble in managing relationships with players that ultimately he can't help himself and everything gets damaged as we saw at Dortmund, as we saw at PSG, and as we saw with some players at Chelsea. So an immediate fix from Tuchel is not exactly what I think Bayern needs. But beside the point, we're looking at the board feeling like it has to go out and publicly say they're supporting the coach. But in the same breath, we're also seeing stories emerge that the front office wants something more from Nagelsmann. They want more from him and they expect more from him. And some of the things that they want from Nagelsmann, according to Sky Sport, are stronger leadership that he needs to to be the type of coach that commands respect, that he becomes the leader that the players look to. As of now, I think it's probably a valid criticism given all of the stories that we're hearing about players being unhappy and players questioning certain things that the coach is doing. And the players feel like that Nagelsmann is pointing fingers at them. He needs to be a better leader. So I get that. This one cracked me up. Uh, Professionalize his external image. Like I don't really care what the coach wears. Um, This is one of the things that build brought up is that Nagelsmann's getting some heat for what he wears to games. And while the club is happy that he wears Adidas and Hugo boss as his clothes, that they're not, thrilled with the type of clothes that he wears like again Byron what did you think you were getting with Julian Nagelsmann the guy he he still rides a longboard I think he's got motorcycles he's a very casual person and that's okay I could care less how he dresses I don't need every coach to dress like Carlo Ancelotti on the sideline I don't need a three-piece suit on the sideline for every game in fact if I was a coach I would want to be comfortable. I wouldn't care if he was out there wearing shorts, to be honest with you. So to me, while Byron does have this standard of itself and they have this brand that I think they like to maintain and this image they like to put out there, who cares what the coach is wearing? 
I mean, to me, it makes no difference. As long as he can coach, as long as he can manage his players, then I think he's fine. Now, maybe that is the issue. Maybe that the the club executives are like, well, listen, like he's not fulfilling that end of the bargain, so he better dress the part. And maybe that's it. Maybe they think if he dresses the part that he'll instantly look more professional and become more respected. I don't buy any of that. Then again, I am a guy that wears T-shirts and shorts to work year-round, so what do I know? Uh, I'm probably the last person that anyone should consult about professional attire for the workplace. Um, another thing that uh, that the the club executives would like to see from Nagelsmann is for him to put more pressure on the players. Now, this is, again, a point of contention because some of the players already feel like that Nagelsmann is, is placing blame on them and that maybe is applying pressure on them through the media. Now, this is a, it's a fine line for any coach. How do you apply pressure on your players to get the best out of them <clears throat> without overstepping your boundaries? And Nagelsmann, to me, I think he had a good idea for how to do that at Hoffenheim. I think he had a really good idea about how to do that at Leipzig. And I think the results that he achieved at those places, they bore that. You could see that he was able to successfully do that. At Bayern Munich, it's a different animal. You have players that are making 20 plus million a season. You have players that have huge egos because they are world-class and they have done it. And they can look at you and say, hey, boss, uh, I've won a World Cup. I've won the Champions League. What exactly have you done? And while no one would probably verbally say that, you know, I'm sure that some of them probably think it at times, right? Especially with all the things that have come out of late. So when you look at this situation in terms of applying pressure, it really is a fine line. Does Nagelsmann have the relationships built up with those players? Is he communicating effectively enough to to be able to push players when he needs to? And I'm not sure at this point that he is. Now, part of that is he's got a very strong core group of veterans who control that locker room. He also has a lot of new players in some of which are probably, hmm, how can I say this? Probably think a lot of themselves, right? Sadio Mane won a Champions League. He's he's was had an excellent career at Liverpool. He is a high-priced player. He came here as kind of a, uh, a quote-unquote savior in some respects when everyone knew Robert Lewandowski was leaving. I'm sure he has a lot of expectations uh, of himself, but for the team and of the coach as well. And, and that's not easy to deal with. Matthias Delict came in and he has been lauded for his own leadership on the field, but he's also a kid that has always come up being told how great he is. He went from Ajax to Juventus. He's quite frankly been coddled the whole way. And I think, I think Delict is a great player, but again, he's coming in and he's not probably playing as much as he thought. And as much as he publicly might say, it's okay it's probably not in his own mind. Um, so to me, like I think that Nagelsmann has a twofold job in terms of building these relationships. One, he's got to win over that existing leadership structure. And I'm talking about players like Thomas Muller, Joshua Kimmich, Manuel Neuer, and Kingsley Coman, players like that. He's got to be able to win them over so that the other players follow their lead. As far as the newbies go, it's a very delicate situation. You can tell that Sadio Mane does not like to be benched, that he wants to be in the lineup all the time. If that is his expectation, given all of the talent that Byron has on its roster, that might be tough. Now, we've also seen this week that Mane might be relegated to playing a wing position, in particular left wing. Well, what is Leroy Sané's best and most productive position? That would also be left wing. So, Automatically, we have all of these uh, conflicts that occur or that could occur, and we have Julian Nagelsmann needing to manage all of these. And, and and to me, when I look at what Nagelsmann has to do and I look at how he's got to manage all of these personalities, I don't know that he's been given enough time to make it happen yet. He still has to build and establish the relationships with the new players. And he still has to fully win over this existing core group uh, of leaders that the team has. And if he can't do that, it, it is really going to be a, a difficult situation for Nagelsmann because so much of how to handle and manage today's players relies on how the coach communicates, what kind of relationship he has. And right now, 
it does appear <laughs> that Nagelsmann is struggling to get all of that done. So I- I'm really, I'm really torn on what I think is going to happen here because he's got to do so much back channel working with these players. It's going to be hard to keep them all happy, which I always thought would be a problem when you have a a dynamic and talented roster like you do with Bayern Munich. Um, as far as the player criticism goes, and this is something we touched on slightly before, um, you know, we've had the athletic, we've had build, we've had sport one, we've had sky. They've all touched on this. This is clearly something that even if you don't believe all of the reports, there's got to be some veracity to this because it's been reported everywhere. Um, and to me, when I look at this and I see that Nogglesman, you know, after games is not always the most willing to accept all of the blame that he might not always uh, be there and want to, to talk about all the things that went wrong it can come across that he's pointing the finger at the players. And there have been even some instances where, you know, you could even look at his quotes and say, well, yeah, he's, he's taking the blame off him and putting on the players personally for all of the failures, if you want to call them that so far this season that have occurred, I would say the large majority do fall on the players because ultimately you have to produce, you can't keep creating that many chances and be that inefficient with those chances. That is, to me, the bottom line. You can't make the kind of mistakes that Matthijs De Ligt and Diopa Makano have made in games that, that change games because they ultimately lead to goals. Um, you know, these are very, very good players, whether you're talking about the attack or the defense, that have, have made monumental errors over the course of Bayern's struggles. So when it comes to criticism, sure, the coach always has to say, hey, this loss is on me. That's, I mean, that's ultimately what every player wants to hear because they don't want to take the blame. But Nagelsmann has been reluctant to to really put it all on his shoulders. And I think to to fully start to win over the locker room, he's probably going to have to, even at times where he feels like he's been let down by the players or where he's felt like the players have underperformed. And certainly they have underperformed. That, that let's let's be very clear: the players have not been good enough, and and. I, you know, I will argue with anyone about that. They have played well. They have created a lot. They've, for the most part, been very good in the midfield and very good defensively. But the results are what they are because the players haven't performed at those moments where they've needed to. So when you get all of that, I think the solution for Nagelsmann here is probably just to start taking the blame for things. As much as his ego might not like that, and as much as he might feel like it's wrong, if he wants to win this roster over, he's going to have to start shouldering that. He's going to have to put it on his back, and he's going to have to wear it. He's going to have to be the person that takes the blame when things go wrong because right now his tactics seem to be pissing off the players. And unfortunately for him, the louder these rumblings get, the longer they're going to stay in the news cycle and the harder it's going to be for him to get away from that reputation of being someone that blames his players. Um, so for me, I think that's one area where he's going to have to change. And finally, the last thing, and this was one of the more concerning things that came out and Sky issued this report, is that the players have approached Nagelsmann about wanting to play a different system. Now, <sighs> This is a very touchy subject, right? Nagelsmann assessed this roster. He looked at the talent that he had, how to make it all work, I'm sure, including rotations in the mix, and assessed that he needed to run a four triple two. And for a while, it looked great, and then it didn't. (laughs) So we've seen some different variations of formations of late, but it doesn't seem like, one, Nagelsmann has settled on anything yet, despite the assertion that the players think he's four triple two or die. And it doesn't seem like the players are really comfortable operating in many of these formations. And and part of that, I I feel like has to do with the way Nagelsmann is rotated, how he's used some of the players and the constant floating between formations, I think has caused confusion. And I think we saw a lot of this last year that Byron had floated between a back three and a back four and different variations of back four based formations that the team was largely out of sync for great periods of the season. Right now, I feel like if the players are approaching him, there, there's one, a lot of agenda going on for certain players that would be approaching him. Again, if this story's all true, right, and who knows if it's true or not, 
if it's true, the fact that players felt so strongly as to approach him, there had to be something those players wanted. Who would be the players approaching him? Who would have the most to gain from ditching the four triple two? Um, I don't know. I'm not even going to speculate because I'm sure you could all get the wheels turning in your head and figure that out. But the bottom line is the players, if this story is true, are not comfortable in the four triple two as as we probably would like them to be. Maybe more troubling is the coach might not be comfortable operating in a four three two one or a four three three like many people would like to see him operate in because he might not be comfortable with how he's going to rotate or how he's going to use certain players. And this goes back to how do you manage a roster of this size? And it also goes back to you wanted to replace Robert Lewandowski. You brought in Sadio Mane. And, and let's be honest, Brazo, Nagelsmann, they said, they oh, he could seamlessly play at striker. It won't be a problem. It, it has been a bit of a problem, to be honest, of late. Uh, Mane started out hot, but it doesn't look like he's that traditional number nine or, or that he's going to be able to be as consistent as you would like at the number nine. So replacing Lewandowski, it didn't work with Mane, especially if they're considering playing him at wing now. It just creates even more of a cluster F at wing because now you've got Coman, Canabri, Sané, Musiala, and Mane, sometimes Muller. I, I, I might have even said Mane twice there, but the bottom line is you've got so many wings now. How do you keep them all happy? Uh, and if Musiala gets pushed out of wing and he has to play attacking midfield, then you're going to isolate and make Thomas Muller unhappy. And then who exactly is filling the number nine role? Is it Thomas Muller? Because if it is, I have a problem with that because Muller seems more interested in playmaking and passing than actually scoring, which, of course, I would want my striker to do. I want my striker to be so goal-hungry that he's selfish at times, and I don't think that Muller has that kind of dog in him, if I could talk like the kids do these days, right? So I don't know that Muller is that goal-hungry, wants-to-score-at-any-cost kind of player anymore. And can Byron be a functional team if Muller is your number nine? So who do you bring in? Do you bring in Matisse Tell? Is he ready for that at his age? I, I don't know. I haven't seen any track record to think that that he is. I mean, maybe he can be soon. Maybe he can be one day, but it's a big risk. Eric Maxim Chupomoting? No, he's he's not going to be that player for you. He's a backup. So Serge Gnabry, could you move him over to striker and him be effective? Maybe, but let's be honest, Gnabry's finishing hasn't been great either. So there are a lot of issues that come not just with the roster, but how Nagelsmann wants to use the roster for his formations. Will he stick with the four triple two or will the players ultimately win this battle again, if true and get a different formation, conceivably a four, two, three, one. I don't know, but this is going to be a big test for Nagelsmann right now. And it's certainly an area where the coach is going to have to figure it out because he's already got unhappy players, not just about their playing time, but about how they're being used and about what formation they're running. And For him, if he wants to stick to his guns and he wants to isolate the players even more by making them play a system they don't believe in or using them in positions they might not be comfortable in, it might get ugly really quickly for him. So Nagelsmann has a lot of work to do. The team has a lot of work to do in improving its own play. But I do think that these stories that we've seen have at least some legitimacy to them. And I want to touch on that really quickly because... One of the first comments we see whenever we run one of these controversial type stories at BFW is, oh, this is nonsense. It's BS. Heck, even some of our own writers take that tact, okay? When we see these stories, we, of course, assess where they're coming from. But when it comes to Nagelsmann and the consistency of the reports that we've been been seeing, I mean, to me, I'm left with no other choice than to look at this and say there's something there. It might not be fully everything that Build is reporting or what Sky is reporting or what Sport One is reporting. But there's enough there that there are issues. And and like just like when we first saw unhappy players break, if you went back to that post and you looked at the comments, of course it came down to, oh, anonymous players uh, just build starting their usual nonsense, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not here to pick up for build. I could really care less about build. My point is that when you see a story like this, you can't just dismiss it and just say it's nonsense because as it turned out in that case, there were unhappy players. And in fact, the players kind of outed themselves on it. Gretzka talked about it. Gravenberg talked about it. 
there is legitimacy to a lot of what is being reported on. Is it as bad as some of the outlets make it out to be? Do they take a, a more dramatic slant to it? Maybe. I mean, maybe in some cases they do. But what's become clear based on all of the reports is that there are issues and there is not exactly uh, a harmony there between Nagelsmann and the team at this point. There's not a harmony between the front office and Nagelsmann or the front office and the players. There's a lot of uh, animosity issues. I don't know what you want to call it, but there are, there are things going on at Bayern Munich. And believe me, when we assess these these stories that we see we're not out there looking for clicks because to be honest like we don't get a ton of clicks on a lot of these stories right we just don't we're reporting them based on what the german outlets are putting out there um you know and for the stuff that's more nonsense that come from less reputable reputable places we put it in the daily schmanko every day so that's where you know where to find that stuff but when it comes down to this and we see these stories it, I, I assess it and I look at how how it's being reported, what the message is, and what the main plot points are. And then we wait. And then we see other outlets coming with their versions. And we see more information. So looking at this, I'm saying that a lot of what we're seeing, there is real legitimacy too. And the one story I'd like to bring up, and this is... It, it actually deals with this exact thing. And it's a Philadelphia related story. And it actually comes from a writer who I personally know. I mean, we're acquaintances. I've worked games with him before, but a couple of years back when Carson Wentz was still the quarterback with the Eagles, he wrote a pretty scathing behind the scenes story about how Carson Wentz was perceived uh, with the Eagles team, with his teammates within the organization by the executives, the coaching staff, and all that so it became a huge huge deal here and this guy's reputation <laughs> got drugged through the mud i'm talking it made tv it made he was like a real target on talk radio for for weeks and in the end when all this came out and as carson went stayed longer and people started to see more and more of what the story stated about his attitude, about how his teammates felt about him, about what he, he was like behind the scenes and the impact he had in making demands on his coaching staff and his own lack of taking responsibility. It all was true. And for months and months and months, this guy had his whole reputation just destroyed. And I'm not saying it like I, I consider him an acquaintance more than like, certainly not a friend. Like I don't hang out with the guy by any means, but the point is everyone thought he was BS and he was strictly reporting it for the clicks. And he just wanted to stir up controversy and trouble, but he wasn't, he legitimately had good sources. He legitimately had real stories. And I see a lot of that particular situation in this Bayern Munich situation. I don't always jump to conclusions about reports. Sometimes I look at them and I say, all right, well, that's probably doesn't have a whole lot of veracity. We're going to schmonk all that. And that's what we literally do when we decide where to put posts. Like, oh, that's a schmonk item because it's, you know, whatever from whatever site and it's kind of nonsense. So that's how we make that decision. But I would not always be so sure to think that these German outlets are just out here for clicks or that they're just out here to stir up controversy because a lot of times what they're reporting on ultimately comes out to at least have some semblance of truth. Again, you can always debate how serious the issue is or if they've extended what's going on, but there's always at least a little shred of the truth in there. So just uh, when you look at the stories, especially if you see them on AZ or TZ or Build or Sky or whatever first, like just don't just dismiss them. There's usually something there that's relevant and sometimes it's 100% relevant so don't always just jump to that conclusion finally I'll close this show like I always do with a little bit of an entertainment rundown and I am a huge huge slacker these days with tv because I have been so busy so I have not started Cobra Kai yet which is ridiculous since I have been the biggest proponent of that show or one of the biggest proponents at least uh an SB Nation <laughs> and BFW uh, so I apologize for that. I have not started Andor, uh, which again, I'm a bit of a Star Wars nerd. So 
looking forward to seeing that. It's gotten some good reviews. I'm still hung up on House of the Dragon, so I'm all caught up on that. And we did see some major plot points break out this week in the show. And now we're prepping for yet another time hop, only this time with the time hop, we are going to see different actors and actresses take over some of the roles for the younger uh, actors and actresses who were playing those parts. So we're going to see uh, a new Prince Renera. We're going to see a new Queen Allison. So just to break down very quickly, because this has already been a pretty long episode, uh, my thoughts on how things played out with House of the Dragon. Um, I thought it was very interesting that over the course of, of this show, we see a lot of things going back and forth. We see Damon looking like a, a good guy who might be perceived the wrong way. Then we see him as being a terrible guy to this, to then maybe being maybe not so bad, maybe just being someone that makes terrible choices. And then we see him being a totally reprehensible figure once more. So it's really back and forth. We see the King looks decent. Then he looks sick. Then he looks okay. And he's forceful and making hard decisions. And then he looks like a weakened old man. Again, there's just a lot of that going on. It's, it's kind of, maddening to keep up with because it's tough to get the state of of what each character is like is otto hightower really a conniving bastard looking to get his family in one form or another on the throne or is he someone who is strictly looking out for what's best for the realm we don't know yet we don't know that really what's going on with some of these characters what we do know through if you read anything or you've read books or anything you'll know where this story's going but where how all these characters get there in the tv show from where they're at now to what that end result will be it's it's kind of i think so choppily laid out it's been so mishandled in some ways it's been very tough for the viewers to to really dive into fully like i'm enjoying the show i don't want to make it seem like i'm not but it does really take me a lot to to really like think about like how did we get from a to b here because it's not always extremely i don't want to say clear but it's always like you have to make a lot of assumptions and and you know we we get the typical game of thrones thing where we start to see new characters introduced and they quickly play important roles and in some ways they play roles that are bigger than what their character is so we're we're trying to mix all of this together and come out with a coherent storyline and it's been a little bit tough but the end result is we see the ultimate marriage of princess Rhaenyra and Leno Valerian which is a marriage built essentially on a hoax because Leno Valerian, of course, if you watch the episode is not interested in women. So the whole line of succession kind of thing kind of goes out the window because you need a King and a queen to get together to have offspring. Right. So, um, or eventually when they're a King and a queen, I guess I'm jumping ahead a little bit, just like the show does, but either way, uh, how that all culminated was, you know, the conniving and political posturing that we always see in Game of Thrones came to a head once again when we saw Leno Valerian's lover slash friend uh, confront Sir Criston about his relationship with Princess Rhaenyra. And Sir Criston's response to being threatened was to bash the guy's face in, which was kind of cool to see. But it also kind of outed Leno Valerian into his relationship with that person. And then everything got fast forwarded to just having the vows take place between Renera and Leno. And now all of a sudden we have that situation solved. We have Queen Allison coming to the realization through a somewhat hazardly done, haphazardly done confession from Sir Kristen about what went down with him and the princess the funny way that that played out is I saw a lot of reaction on the internet by people saying that he caved too quickly, but the, the dynamic in that scene was that to me, and if I'm reading this wrong, hopefully someone corrects me that queen Allison had, uh, she was really testing him on if Renera and Damon had gotten together in such a manner that Renera had to use tea as kind of the morning after pill or whatever. 
because you know if you've seen game of thrones you know that the t that the grand maester uses can can be used as kind of a liquid abortion of sorts i don't know i'm not going to dive too deep into that but that's how i perceived it and sir Kristen, not reading the situation properly uh confessed to betting the princess because he thought that queen allison was referring to him and not damon so she queen allison actually got this information uh in a manner in which she wasn't expecting and now she holds this political card over the princess so we've got all of this going on and now we're going to time hop again and it seems like that everyone's a little older looking everyone is a little more political and we're going to see a lot more infighting as these episodes go on so there was a lot to take in there were a lot of moving parts to this and i'm i'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out but i'm also very skeptical that this whole thing is going to be done properly just because I, I can't believe it until I see it with Game of Thrones after the way everything ended in the original series. So that's about all I have for this one. I promise I will be starting Cobra Kai soon. I have to, I, I really want to start. I just have not been home that much of late. And when I have been home, I've been working my, uh, my ass off a bit. So um just want to say thanks again to everybody for listening. I know this is a bit of a longer episode, but there was a lot to cover with Bayern Munich. There's a lot to cover with Germany and hell, there was a lot to cover with house of the dragon too. So appreciate it. Uh, I want you guys to have a great weekend. Enjoy the international matches, uh, Germany, Hungary, Germany, England, uh, any of the other countries you might be following. I'm sure there'll be some great football this weekend to watch, have a couple of beers on me. You can get me at the barrel blog on Twitter. You can get the site at Bavarian FB works. You can get Tom at Tommy Adam 71. You can get I need no name at BFW get all of our other fantastic podcasters and writers on the site. So please check out the site. We'll have all of the great game coverage for Germany's international matches. We'll have continued coverage of all of the drama surrounding Bayern Munich. And we will have a lot of fun on the site and on the podcast as they continue to roll out with posts and new podcasts. So, Thank you all for listening. Thanks for supporting BFW. Have a great weekend and we will see you next time.